You are listening to the message by Antioch Centre for the Nations. For more information, please visit www.antiochcenterforthenations.org. Thank you. The title of my message tonight is Guilt, Regret, Conviction. Uh, fighting, yeah, it's kind of a heavy title, isn't it? Uh, someone like here for the message, they're like, wait, what are we talking about tonight? Well, guilt, regret, conviction, fighting the inner battles. Now, this is a strange message because I had not thought this through beforehand. I just this morning, early, I woke up and uh, by the first sip of my coffee, this came to me. And I began to listen to what the Spirit is saying, and it turned out to be a pretty fascinating adventure into differentiating these elements of our life. It's so hard for us to hear and, and understand sometimes what life is doing to us, what our hearts are telling us, what our minds are telling us, what the Spirit is speaking. It's so hard sometimes to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying because we wrestle with issues and feelings. And uh, honestly, I see people all the time all over the world. I see happiness. I see joy. I can see it in the city. I can see it in the train. And, and I'm smiling just remembering images of people that are having fun. Have ever been around people that are laughing and they cannot stop laughing, and you're wondering at first what they're laughing at, but then it's contagious, and you start laughing with them. I don't know if you've ever seen that woman on YouTube that got the Chewbacca mask, and put, oh, it's one of my favorite, whenever I need, that is like instant laughter in a can. When I want to laugh, I will put her on. When <laughs> she puts it on and she laughs, it's hilarious. And it was really amazing, too, when Disney opened the new Star Wars park. They actually brought her there uh, to, to pose for photo opportunities in the, in, as they opened it because, you know, that she did a lot. I'm sure that they were grateful for how many Chewbacca masks must have sold in Walmarts and Targets and, and other places in the U.S. But I like that. I like to see people that are happy. And then conversely, I see people sometime that are obviously under a shadow. They are miserable, uh, sick in their hearts. Uh, their darkness to me is sometimes palpable. I can feel it. And you know that they are oppressed. Something has happened. And sometimes that darkness is as contagious as that joy. You can be around the happiness and feel happy. Sometimes you be around people who are under that type of oppression and that also you start to pick up on. So people go through things and, and I ask God why about these feelings and I consider life and people living it and wonder why some are so happy all the time and some are so sad all the time. And, and honestly... It's, it's not wise to simply conclude that the happy ones are happy because happy things are going on in their life. Or that the sad ones are sad because good things are going on in their life. That's really not true. Because I know some really happy people that should be miserable and are surrounded by misery and surrounded by difficulty and trials. And I know some really miserable people 
that should be very happy because they have everything they need and want surrounding them and they have all of the things of life. So it's a deeper issue than just your circumstances. We aren't simply what we are, who we are because of the atmosphere we're in, but there's some choices being made, some choices in your mind, in your heart. And I begin to consider it from a biblical perspective. I know the people that are miserable like that, they suffer from anger, frustration, bitterness, guilt, as we're talking about. Sometimes there's shame, feelings of helplessness that life may have left them with or left you with if you feel that. A regret from the past can be such a disease to destroy you. And it is absolutely, before I even define it, it's a tool of the enemy to bring destruction. Remember, Satan's agenda is to steal, kill, and destroy. And regret is one of the tools he uses. And guilt is a bit different than that. And so I find that some people will not always be able to differentiate. And so I'm going to talk about that a little bit. We, all the time, are, are dealing with issues of guilt and regret but not always know what we're going through. And there's different origins of these feelings, of course. So I'm going to basically ask three questions tonight in this message. This is three questions about guilt, regret, and conviction. And we're going to go to some passages. And mostly we need the Holy Spirit to help us with this. I've been counseling for 35 years. I've been counseled for 35 years. I have been with so many people speaking and I would lie if I said I had the answers entirely. I have some answers. But I have found that the anointing can break the yoke. And that the presence of God, if we yield to it, has a way of making us able to sift through these things in life and find a place of joy in spite of it. And we're also going to later visit an old prayer that came about in 1843 is one of the first times that it was identified. You'll know the prayer. It's the serenity prayer that they use in the 12-step program. They use a portion of it. But I tracked it down and studied it and found the entire prayer. And it's really a beautiful prayer. Powerful. And uh, we're going to look at it later on as well as pray it together because it contains some answers to the things that I'm talking about. So these are some questions we're going to ask. The first one, you know, what is regret and guilt? Uh, define regret is a negative conscience and emotional reaction to an undesirable situation from the past. I'm using the dictionary definition, but it, it is quite accurate. A negative conscience and emotional reaction to an undesirable situation from the past. Something happened. Now, what causes this regret depends upon many things. It may have been your choices, maybe poor choices, maybe misinformed choices, maybe what you thought was a wise choice that turned out to not be a wise choice. Whatever the case, it didn't work out like you thought, and it caused a situation in your life that now you wish you could go back in time and think differently and change it. You wish you could go back and do things differently, but you can't. And so instead of dealing with it in a way that helps you move on, you hold on to it. You continue to rehearse it. You continue to remember it. And just like those negative people that can be contagious, these negative memories can be contagious in your present situation. You can perpetuate misery. You can perpetuate your feelings of despair 
if regret takes hold in your life. So we should be really cautious with it. Guilt is defined as a deep feeling of remorse for an act which may or may not have occurred in the past. Therefore, guilt becomes a past experience which is renewed in the present moment. It may be connected even to something not yet done. How many of you have ever felt guilty for something you haven't even done yet? But when you're thinking about it, you, you feel guilt. We commonly will call that conviction. And sometimes it is. Sometimes that conviction has its origins in the Holy Spirit. Sometimes that conviction has its origins in our logic or our mind or our human heart. And I'm not saying that it is always decided, but guilt can come this way. And, and, and you can experience guilty feelings when thinking or planning something in the future. This is more akin to conviction from the conscience uh, or God's spirit, as I said, those different sources. So as we think about this, I know all of us right now, when we hear the word regret with this definition, when we hear the word guilt, with this definition, we start thinking about some areas of our life where we do feel guilt or maybe regret. Uh, guilt is of the two. If you have to have one or the other, I would much rather guilt than regret because guilt is more productive. You can do something with that. Ministries can be born out of guilt. I think of the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, uh, devoted to God the best that he knew how, very educated man. And when he had his uh, first real entrance in power, it was to serve the Sanhedrin and work to eradicate the disease of Christianity, work to eradicate the way these people who were corrupting Jewish culture by bringing in these damnable heresies of this false prophet called Jesus, as they thought he was. And uh, Paul in service, or Saul of Tarsus in service to what he believed to be the kingdom of God, began to persecute those who believed in Christ to such an extent, even holding them trial and then even executing some of them, putting them into prisons, even beating them. And he grew in authority because the, the, the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, wanted to eradicate all the people. They thought that as Jesus had come, he would go. And they thought they solved the problem when they put him on the cross. Uh, but it didn't work. It continued and even grew because the Holy Spirit now, you know, you can't exactly kill the Holy Spirit. You can't stop the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will go from person to person. And that's what Jesus said. It's better that I go away because if I go away, the Holy Spirit will be with you. So how do you conquer a spiritual force that is of God? You don't. But even Gamaliel said in council, look, guys, before you raise your hand against what you see, he said this to the Sanhedrin, be very careful because, you know, if it's God or if it's not God, I'm not really sure. He was a wise man. He said, but if you do raise your hand against it and it turns out to be God, then you're raising your hand against God. That's a dangerous situation. If it's of man, this is what my counsel is, he said to the Sanhedrin. Just leave it alone. We've all seen these fads. We've seen these religious leaders rise and, and these uprisings come and then they always die out. If it, if it is of God, it's God. If it's not, don't worry about it. And he counseled them to pull back a little bit. But Saul was not so gentle. He was focused and wanted to. And as a result, of course, he persecuted 
And that's where Jesus decided, instead of just outright obliterating Saul, he decided, I can use somebody like this. I just need to redirect him. And he showed up on the road to Damascus, and the light of God consumed him. And he spoke to him and said, Saul, Saul. I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, the guy you're messing with. I'm the one you're persecuting. Why are you doing this? Why are you fighting against the flow of God, that what God wants to do? And he said, tell me what I have to do. And of course, he was blinded. He was put in a house for three days. And Ananias went and prayed for him so that he could receive his sight and receive the Holy Spirit. And from that moment on, when Paul really met Jesus, he, he suffered from guilt. Uh, many theologians have, have, you know, expounded on it, and I've always seen it. He was driven. He was driven with so much guilt that he was willing to go to hell if it meant the Jews could go to heaven, that, that the believers or the people could believe. He, he said, now, I would never make such a statement. I always point out, and I think that, wow, why would you say something like that? Because he says it. He said, I would gladly trade my own soul if it meant that Israel or the people would be able to come to the knowledge of Christ. That comes from a psychology of feeling bad about the things that he did, but more importantly, doing something to make a difference, to make amends. So we start to see that guilt can be productive in that sense. Wives know guilt can be productive because they use it with their husbands. If a husband doesn't do something that he, honestly maybe he should be doing, it's not that difficult for wives to use something, some words, some phrases, some implications to cause guilt to arise in their life. And finally, you get guilty enough and, and you feel bad and you go do it. So oh, I think some women would agree. Guilt's okay. I like guilt. Guilt can work for me at times. I'm not saying that we you know, should manipulate each other. Uh, a husband could also be guilty of using guilt <laughs> as well. We use it in friendship sometimes, you know, that we want people uh, to feel guilty about something. And it, it can serve God's purposes, is what I'm trying to say. Before you throw off all guilt, it can be productive and it can be used. And this is where we start to see the distinction between these two, regret versus guilt. And the Lord was speaking to me so much in the morning about this. Another question I ask, how do you discern the different feelings and their importance? And, you know, one of the hardest aspects of hearing and obeying the voice of God for us is this issue, trying to sift through feelings we feel when we are presented with opportunities, when we're presented with situations and relationships. And uh, the human heart, of course, the soul it's hard for us to navigate through life. Proverbs 14.10 says, Each heart knows its own bitterness, and no one else can share its joy, which means that we are so unique with regards to guilt, regret, these feelings, bitterness of the heart, uh, things that we go through in life. So it's really our responsibility to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And as we confront issues that we're feeling guilty about or regrets that we're carrying from the past, it's our obligation. Uh, you can go sit in counseling. You can listen to many messages and teachings. But ultimately, I find the safest course of action is to be introspective, to 
deal with your own heart, with your own mind, and later we'll visit a scripture that says that, that tell the truth in your heart. And I want to look again now scripturally at a couple of instances. Let's, let's go back to regret, because really Judas had regret. Uh, early in the morning, this is Matthew 27, 1, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. Now first let's understand how Jesus got into custody to begin with. Uh, well, of course, we know no one could take Jesus before the time that Jesus submitted. They tried to. A mob tried to push him off of a cliff after he preached a particularly disturbing message in their synagogue about him being Messiah and all. They decided this is blasphemy, but it wasn't his time. So he could, under the power present with him, immobilize people, obviously. That's how I envision it. And just walked right through them, them puzzled about how how did we not throw him off the cliff? I'm sure later they thought a lot about it. Like, we had him in our grass. He was right here. We were all blocking him. We were about to throw him off. And then suddenly we just kind of watched him walk away through the crowd. That's supernatural. And the father obviously gave power. Because everything that happened through to Jesus and through Jesus was not of origin in Jesus. It came from eternity because he was operating in an earthly form. So the Father gave power to preserve him in that moment. But later when the time was right, he would yield, but he needed an agent. He needed someone that would be able to betray him so that the powers of the world could take him. And he yielded to that process. We don't always have choice about yielding or not to the process. The process will occur. We will have people betray us. That will take place. But in this case, of course, Jesus chose that. And as a result, here he is now. Judas had to yield. How many of you believe Judas had a free will the entire time? At any moment, he could have chosen whatever he wanted, but he yielded. So Jesus is here. They are making plans on how to have him executed. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Now, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. Now, you might say, well, duh. What do you mean? How was he surprised? If What did he think was going to happen? I really believe that he was banking on the possibility or the fact in his mind that no one can take this Jesus. He was there to see the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes. He was there to see dead raised. He was there to see deaf ears open, blind eyes open, lame walking, limbs growing out. I mean, he saw miracles every day with Jesus, and he probably thought that nobody's ever going to be able to lay a finger on Jesus. And so he allowed himself to be deceived into playing a part really so that he could get a little revenue from the situation, a little money, because we know he had a money issue. But whatever the case, now that they've bound him and Jesus was condemned, when Judas saw this, he was shocked. He was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. And they went away, or he went away, and hanged himself. Now, this is a result of exactly 
what regret can do. Uh, he felt guilty, yes, but even more so this remorse that it's speaking of is a deep regret. Also, guilt can have the same effect. So some decisions were made on the part of Judas. And I've often considered this passage because I feel sorry for the bad guys in the Bible. I love to study them. Uh, one of the reasons is because I am the bad guy. Uh, how many of you have ever found yourself in the bad guy position in life? I have virtually walked out almost all of the scenarios of badness in the Bible at one time or another in my life. So I dare not point a finger at about how bad anybody is, in the, even in the Bible. And that's why those stories are there. By the way, I'm in pretty good company. Peter, you know, um, David. I can name the greats, and all of them have patterns in their life that were problematic. All of them, of course, would have been tempted to suffer from regret. All of them would have been sorry for things they did, and hopefully uh, the things will be different in the future. But if they did what Judas did, what if they had all decided to be suicidal? What if they all decided that the only way I can solve this is to kill myself? Well, we would have a lot less Bible to read, wouldn't we? It would be a, a book of suicides. Because um, most of them had some pretty good... I see people committing suicide all the time. And when I hear the reasons, I think that's nothing. The people in the Bible went through far worse than that. And they didn't commit suicide. But Judas, he made a choice. And like Judas, you know, we, we all do this a message I usually teach about uh, seven things about self-condemnation. And that's really the poison of regret is coupled with our judgment of self or self-condemnation, this is where it will become destructive and even suicidal. So we need to be prepared. Uh, but we do dumb things. Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a great multitude, and he betrayed him by kissing him. He had planned this before. Jesus knew it. And that's a dumb thing. So uh, sin is everywhere available to us. But we know that his motivation was money. Secondly, we, we, we see these results of sin. When he saw the sin and what it caused, that is, Jesus being condemned, then he was seized with this remorse. But we all go through that. We do something dumb in life. We make a poor decision. We see the results of it, and we are seized with remorse. So we're walking along the same path. Thirdly, we feel great remorse because it says about this, he says he felt this remorse. The word means that in his, in his entire insides, it consumed him. It seized with it. He felt it, the pain for the action he committed, just like we do. The feeling caused by seeing this result leads us, actually it should lead us to true repentance. And that's where the process is working, and Judas should yield to it, but we can reverse our course. And so far, Judas is doing pretty good, if you think about it, because he did that. If repentance is manifested in fruit, it says fruits worthy of repentance in the Bible. In other words, some action. In that regard, repentance is a lot like faith. Without works, it's dead. Uh, if, if I do something wrong to someone, I can say I'm sorry all day long. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And sometimes you can say sorry in such a way that it's just arrogant and self-serving. So it's not a magical formula of words. It's an act. You've got to do something. Without action, your apology is ineffective. 
And how many of you have ever had people come and say, oh, I'm so sorry about things that they did, and that's great. And they walk away, and you say, oh, don't worry about it. But in your heart of hearts, you're like, oh, great, that did a lot of good. Sorry means nothing. And so you, you're not reconciled. Things did not work out, and there's an issue there. But in this case, even we see Judas is doing exactly what, what he says. He threw the money into the temple. What he had received, he took and he threw it into the temple. He says, I don't want it. So he's doing the right thing, and he even confesses his sin. He comes out with a clear confession and says, I have Sin, that's an absolute confession. Because part of us being free of the bad things we've done is we make a confession, confess our sins, we repent, we show it with fruit. Judas is doing all these things. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He's identifying his badness and saying it out loud. And that's a lot of different things he's going through. But we have a choice then at this point. Judas had a choice just like we do that you can condemn yourself or you can put yourself into the court of God. You either submit to the Spirit of the Lord concerning your errors and your issues and your problems in life, or you take it into your own hands and you become your own judge and jury. And that's exactly what happens with Judas because the seventh and final thing that happens to him um, is that, well, we know that he hung himself and he died and there's another passage that talks just about how gruesome it is. The money they threw back, they didn't want it. They called it blood money. It's funny how they would give it, but they don't want it back. And they took it and bought the potter's field where they could bury criminals or people who did not have a place to be buried. And uh, before that, though, where Judas hung himself, they left him. They left his hanging body for so long, in fact, that he rotted. And he rotted to the point that he burst and his insides spilled out on the ground. Uh, why would they leave him hanging there? It's just such an image, a grotesque image. I don't mean to sound so grotesque as we move toward our time of fellowship and food. But we're having gumbo later. Don't think about this. But it was an image. It's an image that the Bible gives us. To, to impact us concerning regret, what regret does and, and how, if we are, we're not careful, it will bring destruction to us. But we can be restored. There's always a way out. There is no temptation too great that God does not also give us a way of escape, the Bible says. I would say then there's no regret too great. There's no guilt too great that God doesn't make a way for us to be free. If he didn't, then why did he even come and die for us? The whole issue is that we cannot help ourselves. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're never going to figure it all out. We're always going to make mistakes. Things in life are always going to go wrong. There's always going to be issues. We don't have control. And that's the thing. We want control of everything. But it's impossible. And when we don't have control, we feel helpless. And we feel ashamed like we should have done something more to have more control. But what if it's not possible? It puts you into a dangerous place. A self-destructive place. And that's why I always ask about this character that we're looking at. What would have happened if he had gone to Jesus and asked for forgiveness? The way I always envision it is there's Jesus hanging on the cross, breathing his last breaths. 
There's John and Mary in that moment that he says, John, behold your mother. And to his mother Mary, Mary, behold your son. What if at that very moment as Mary and John, John arm around mother of Jesus, Mary consoling her, suddenly bursting between them is Judas, knocking them to the side, falling to his knees, and they get out of the way. And there's Judas on his knees, hands stretched up to crucified Christ. Forgive me! How many of you believe that Jesus would forgive Judas? Instantly. Of course he would. And that's what I always call Judas's real sin. It wasn't betraying. It wasn't the mistake. It wasn't the stupidity. It was the self-condemnation. Peter had guilt, as we all would have if we had been through this. Because he already swore that he would never, never would he betray the Lord. I'll stand with you through thick and thin. And that makes it even worse when you make a lot of lofty proclamations about your greatness what you're going to do and who you are and even make these declarations about your great integrity and that you don't go back on your word or whatever and then something, something in life causes you to have to do that. Have you ever been in that situation and you wanted everything within your power to keep your word or fulfill what you thought should happen or what you would do but then life somehow changed things and you don't feel it's sufficient to say, well, it's not my fault. In fact, that's often an excuse that doesn't hold a lot of weight. Now Peter was what where'd you go? Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard. He was so ashamed he ran away. But Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You also were were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you're one of them. Your accent gives you away. Because he sounded like a Galilean. That'd be like Singlish. It was very Seriously, it was a very specific accent. I travel the world. I can always spot a Singaporean. I can hear that Singlish from a mile away. Actually, I enjoy it. I've been to Cambodia in the Russian market shopping around, and, and I hear Singlish from across the market, and I get a little warm fuzzy because, you know, I love Singaporeans. So it's a very, and that's what it was. He's talking, but, and don't worry, I'm not going to imitate Singlish. He, he's talking <laughs> with this Galilean accent, and they know who he is, and then he began to call down curses. And he swore to them, I don't know the man, blankety blank blank. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Now, of course, he at this time has this great remorse on him for having done this there in the moment of the greatest need of his Savior that he spent three and a half years with. I will die with you. And then from that moment to this, so quickly vacillates. And oh, man, what a weak soul. What a weak heart. What, what, what fractured resolve. And sometimes this happens in life. Sometimes we get cold feet. Sometimes we just, we don't, we cannot live up to the expectations of ourselves. It's not always others. 
Jesus wasn't expecting anything from them. In fact, he told them the opposite. But they expected in themselves, I can do this. And it's okay to have an I can do attitude in life. It's okay to set your sights high and decide, I will do this. And all of you who've, who've been on diets and you're ready and I'm going to lose. And you put it on the calendar. You know exactly how much you're going to lose by a certain date. And then you get into it and things change. And how many of you ever had dieter's guilt? And it didn't work like you planned. And some people are wiser than that. They simply don't go on diets. The most wise just don't need to go on diets. And I hate you. Those people with those metabolisms, they can eat anything. I know people that I've eaten with them, eat 10 times. Don't laugh, Sarah. 10 times what I can eat. She's she like shaped like a Barbie doll, and she eats a lot. I said, just wait, dear. You're young. Give it time. But you make a decision to do something, and later you just don't. I mean, you've ever committed to learn a thing. I'm going to be a piano player. I'm going to learn to play keyboard. And at first, you really start to do it with your whole heart. Maybe you heard Pastor Stephen say something about how if you just stick to it, I'm going to do it. The pastor said it. I will never not learn piano. And you, you learn those first patterns. And after a while, you're just so bored. And while you're binge watching something on Netflix, you realize, well, this is not piano. <laughs> and that guilt comes over you. We can't, sometimes our expectations of ourselves can be too high. I found an interesting passage of scripture after, because we know, we know his situation works out because he does not condemn himself. And he also, the most important thing, he doesn't quit. He stays in the camp of Christ. He stays with the disciples. He's, uh, he's not making a lot of braggadocious preachings at this point. His head is hung low. I imagine at one time he stood in the front of the group, but at this time he's in the back. I've been in that place. And I, I don't think he was the valiant leader anymore. Uh, John, John showed up. John was there. John was inside the house at the side of Jesus while Annas was questioning him, while the Sanhedrin was deciding. He was in there in the debate because he came out to talk to Peter and says, look, I can get you in, man, if you want to come in. And Peter's like, no, I'm okay right here warmed his hands. So John then had probably had a little bit of attitude, but Peter, no. But later on, you know, that you know, that we won't go into that other passage, but he gave him another chance after they finished eating. He took him to the side and he said, you love me, Peter? Oh, yes, I love you. But how he felt, he's, he was, he was riddled with guilt when the question was asked. You love me? Yeah. Man, if Jesus asked me that, in that situation, I would start bawling instantly. I would have already lost it. You love me. <laughs> Fall on the ground. Crying. I would have had a hard time. But Peter, just I think he had resolved to just be guilty for the rest of his life. I think he felt like there was no way he could get out of this. It's just the way it is. But Jesus restored him by saying, you love me, feed my sheep. Take care of my lambs. Feed them. And you're going to serve me and you're going to do now on. You did what you wanted in this occasion, but there's coming times you're going to be led to do things that you don't want to do and you will serve me. He restored him and Peter did go on. The secret was 
and why Peter was able to get past that guilt was called the Holy Spirit. Because he was baptized in the Holy Spirit and, and Peter 2.0 was totally different. He stood up and spoke with authority and power did an altar call for 5,000 people and baptized them in water. The very next day, he went to the synagogue with John and saw a guy at the gate beautiful and, and brought a miracle. And the guy's jumping up and down. That Peter is such a different Peter than the other Peter. And that's what happens. We can get through guilt with the advent and, and help of the Holy Spirit. He can make us something we're not. But we got to get past that. We got to get past. Uh, this passage is very interesting concerning this issue. God convicts us of sin. Because remember, I'm talking about regret, conviction, but there's there um, and uh, guilt. But conviction, it is connected to guilt, but it's bigger than that. And and this is a description of it in Second Corinthians chapter seven, verse eight. And I found this this morning when I read it. I thought, wow, I've never really seen this. Not like this. I've read through it. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. <laughs> a good preacher would say that. So this is Paul writing them. First of all, historically, we are not positive of what this issue is that he's speaking of. But I studied it, most of the theologians and what the what the perspective is there was an issue in the church between different people there was a falling out and division and a conflict and Paul began to bring correction and he did and when he did he brought guilt being that he was driven by guilt he probably had a lot of it to share so he speaks to them and he writes letters and and I did not regret it he said I see that my letter hurts you but only for a little while Yet now I'm happy. You know why I'm happy? I'm not happy because I made you sorry, but because your sorrow led you to change. That guilt on you caused you to change. For you became sorrowful as God intended. And so were not harmed in any way by us. That we didn't, I didn't. Not me, not Titus or Timothy or Luke. We did our ministry. I wrote the information to you, but God was the one working in you. He intended this so we didn't harm you. God was working. And I can take you in the Hebrews and go into the chastising of the Lord. And if God is not causing guilt on you and conviction and his hand does not heavily come upon you at times, then you're just a bastard. Says it in the Hebrews. It's very clear. But you're not. You're a legitimate children. He's adopted you by the blood of Jesus and children. He cares for children. He scolds children. He corrects. He spanks his kids. And he uses a big paddle. I know I've been spanked many times by the Lord. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. It's so funny because it, it on a tangent I started thinking of how many things we have in life that have a world version and a, and a God version wisdom there's two versions it says that there's wisdom of men there's wisdom you know there's all these things but this is interesting that means that there is a sorrow that comes from the world 
that sorrow is the one that drives you into the bars and into the bottles, into the excess and into the drugs and into uh, the taking of those drugs to escape. And that is not what God is looking for us. To, God is not wanting us to escape. He's wanting us to deal with issues. He's, he's wanting us to face it like a man, you would say, and accept responsibility. He wants us to admit it. Admission of guilt uh, is necessary for there to be uh, remission of sin. Godly sorrow has produced in you what? Earnestness. What? eagerness to clear yourself what indignation it caused what alarm what longing what concern what readiness to see justice done at every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter so even though i wrote to you it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong nor on account of the injured party in other words he's not picking sides i'm not looking at this one's wrong or that one's right or this one's wrong it's more about the fact that you just need to get past this and you need to love one another in the name of jesus and i'm sure his letter that we don't have and some say it was something that occurred between first corinthians and second corinthians and he wrote this letter but whatever the case it's not either side he's picking, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are encouraged. Encouraged to see that they're working this out. Now, there is a real fast list here that flies by, and I'll break it down for you very quickly. What godly sorrow can produce? It says earnestness. Diligence is another way of saying it. Godly sorrow produces and repentance shows the still repentance means to turn around, change everything. The second thing it produces is eagerness. Eagerness to what? To clear yourself of guilt. Guilt, the weight of it, and regret and the feeling of it can be removed, but God is the one that removes it. God can lift that burden off of you. God can take the worst of criminals. God could cause James Dobson to go to Jeffrey Dahmer on death row. I don't know if you know who I'm talking about. Both of these people. James Dobson is an amazing teacher, child psychologist, also did great, some of the greatest things I've ever heard about raising children and gospel in general. Jeffrey Dahmer was a, was a serial killer, a horrible murderer that every, the nation hated him. Public enemy number one, they were all so excited he got the death penalty. But while he's waiting for the death penalty, he called only one and only one man to talk to, and it was James Dobson. And James, a child psychologist. And you think about it, what kind of history a serial killer would have to have probably makes a lot of sense. And he sat with him and he talked with him. And Jeffrey Dahmer prayed to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was washed of his sins and his iniquity was removed. And the angels of heaven burnt his lips with coals and you name it. He was free and happy. And the heavy burden was gone. But what about all those people he murdered? What about all those horrible things? See, man's economy and understanding of guilt and shame and all of these things is not even close. His ways are so far above our ways. And the Bible says, be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. 
What a perfection in some way is attained by simply being able to be like that. And did you know that, that James Dobson received multiple death threats because he said that, J, that um, Jeffrey Dahmer received Christ? <laughs> people were so mad because people are going to, haters are going to hate with good reason. There's a reason they hated him. And maybe you're carrying some regret. Gosh, I feel like I'm talking to somebody. Maybe online, I don't know, but I feel like somebody's going to get set free. Because you might be carrying some regret because you have done horrible things and you just can't get rid of it. But I'm telling you, bring it to Jesus. Bring it to Jesus. Sometimes, sometimes you were a victim of circumstance. Sometimes it's not your fault. But this eagerness to clear yourself. Indignation is one of the things, number three, that it produces. You can become indignant. We're indignant at ourselves for our foolishness in sin. That's a good thing. You, you need to get angry at yourself. You need to get angry at whatever causes the problems in life and the choices you made. I'm not talking about self-condemnation, but I'm also not talking about self-liberty where you just give yourself a license to do anything. And you become a monster, self-serving uh, egotistic, horrible person that nobody wants to be around, nobody wants to be a friend of because you justify every single decision you ever make about anything. You don't want that. You want indignation for yourself. What alarm, what fear is another way it says that godly sorrow produces. This fear. And Paul isn't writing about a fear of God here as much as a fear of sin. What longing, he said, it produced. Another translation says a vehement desire. This vehement desire is expressed through heartfelt prayer. A desire, that longing, will cause you to get on your knees before God so that you bring that regret to him. What concern, what zeal is what it means. This is a word, zelos. We have zeal in our walk with the Lord that comes from this restoration. What readiness to see justice done. In other words, vindication. All produced by what? By godly sorrow. So his conviction, his presence to deal with us, and the form of guilt that he gives us can do amazing things. And the last question I ask is, how do you get rid of the feelings? Okay, so you have these feelings. God is working in you. He wants godly sorrow to accomplish all the things we just saw. But first is honesty. You're going to have to be honest with yourself. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent who may live on your holy mountain the one whose walk is blameless you say well how can anybody walk a blameless walk who does what is righteous well can we do righteousness now you can become righteous and you can walk as blameless as you can but you're gonna have to speak the truth from your heart till you can be truthful from your heart it's not going to work understanding isaiah 118 come now let us reason together saith the lord Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. You have to understand what I just explained, that God has the ability to take it away. God has the ability to make you free. Prayerfully consider the thoughts and feelings of your heart and reflect biblically on all the elements of your situation. Listen to God, accept the truth. Finally, a choice to move forward. 
people stop and stagnate in regret and guilt and they never move on. Never move on. Yesterday, honestly, I'm going to tell you the truth. A lot of this message and what the Spirit was speaking to me came from my time um, uh, yesterday with that man, with Mary's brother, as I was there with him. It just He was talking about things he's been through. He said, I, I, I carry these scars. And I knew exactly what he meant. I knew he didn't mean physical scars. He's talking about, I know anybody in the ministry that long. Gosh. So I just kind of told him a couple of things that I've been through, some things. He said, yep, yep. And he had three times the scars I had. Made me feel better. I felt like I was in good company. That if you do something for God, don't think you're just going to do it and everything's going to be. No, you're going to have to deal with some serious issues. You will be betrayed, attacked, robbed, cheated. Everything is going to happen and you'll get angry and you have these regrets that you carry. And so you have to move forward. You have to decide. Always think of the Joseph principle. You get bitter or you get better. Your choice. You choose bitterness, you die in a hole. You choose to get better, you leave it all behind. Philippians 3, 13. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Three things. Forget, move forward, keep your eyes on heaven. Forget it. It's just not, I just can't. It just can't. You know, the irony of it is while I was talking with that brother yesterday in the background is playing the soundtrack from Frozen. Let it go. Let it go. Literally. It was a setup. <laughs> Issues in my heart and he's talking to me. And literally the television said, let it go. Let it go. It was a little girl's birthday party, so I restrained myself from laying prostrate, screaming in tears. <laughs> Only the own heart knows its own bitterness, amen. I held that one inside. I'm going to take this home with me. <laughs> but finally, I want to end with this prayer. It really impressed me when I read it today, when I read the history of it, too. Uh, we know part of this prayer because we've heard it on television and movies and all these things that serenity prayer. It starts, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Now, a lot of people will cut that part off and just use that. And in all honesty, it is, is by no means innocuous in itself. It's powerful. Just that I get why you can carry that principle and live. God, grant me the serenity. In other words, this ability, because it's, it's a serene presence of God that comes upon you that makes it happen. Even in AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, where they're dealing with these people that have to confront all these regrets and all these issues, one of the steps is to make amends. They teach repentance. It actually comes, it was greatly uh, born and developed in the Welsh Revival. That's where AA came from. And it was a, a program in revival because they had such a problem with alcoholism in Wales that they, they used it and they incorporated this prayer. But it was it was way back then. It was, 1843 is some of the oldest references of it, but some say it was there before that, that this um, uh, Reinhold neighbor was, was already using it in literature. But the first part, so powerful because – 
You accept things you cannot change. There's things you're never going to change. Let me, let me take it a step further. There's things about you that you are never going to change. And that's probably the hardest thing for me. That there are things I've been working on for many years and I just can't seem to stop it. Or I, I thank God for the Bible saying what Paul said that I sought the Lord three times for this to be removed. But, but it didn't. He said, don't worry about it. In your weakness, I'll be strong. And he, he asked him, take it away, take it away. But he didn't. And Paul also spoke about things in his life. He said, the things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I do want to do, I don't do. And he wrestling, oh, wretched man that I am. There's, there's nothing wrong with you accepting the fact that there may be things in life that you simply cannot change. But there's some that you will, and it's not going to be easy. You need courage to change those things. You're going to need a lot of courage because sometimes it's going to cause you to lose everything. Sometimes for you to be free, you have to let go of everybody. And there are people that do that. They're in a culture. They're in an environment. And, and to be truly free, sometimes you're going to have to lose the infrastructure that surrounds you. All that is your security. You're going to, when you make a choice, sometimes everyone will abandon you in that choice. But you know in your heart of hearts, that's what you have to do. And it's going to take courage to change the things that you can change. The wisdom to know the difference. What are the things I can and cannot? Now it goes on to the rest of the prayer. Living one day at a time. Enjoying one moment at a time. Accepting hardship as a pathway to peace. Taking, as Jesus did, this sinful world as it is. Not as I would have it. Trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. Isn't that a beautiful prayer? I, it was a bit cliche for me up until today. I heard about it and read it, eh, but today it resonated. I thought that's a beautiful prayer. So why don't we stand up? This is a simple exercise of our faith, and we say all different kinds of prayers in the presence of the Lord. And we're going to keep that prayer written up there. Because we're just going to read it as it is and pray it together. Before we actually say the prayer, though, I want you to close your eyes. I love what I do. I love teaching God's word. I love being a vessel for his truths to be carried and move forward because the muzzle of the ox that treads out this corn is removed. I get to enjoy the power the potency of every revelation that comes. And I just want to give thanks to Jesus for the freedom that he's continuously ministering to me. That your pastor needs constantly to be 
changed and challenged and touched. Sometimes it's deceiving to be in a position of ministry. People think that you just have it so together. But I'm happy to say that I don't have anything together. I am the broken vessel that he requires, the sacrifice that he's looking for, the contrite heart. I thank God that we serve a powerful king that can make such a difference when we yield. Oh, God, we yield to you tonight. We bring all of our issues to you. We bring all of our problems. Circumstances have come and gone in our lives that have caused great frustration. Some our fault, some not our fault. Some poor choices we've made. Some choices have been made for us without even our consent. And we feel like we've been railroaded, like we've been cornered, been ripped off, been deceived. But even that, Lord, I know that you're bigger than it all. And we trust you. We trust you with our lives and our hearts, our minds, our emotions, and we come under the hand of your healing spirit. Ha! And we yield to the anointing. It's the anointing that breaks the yoke of regret, of guilt. We're not looking to justify any of our sins or give reasons of why things should be different. We just want the weight removed, Lord. We just want the freedom that comes from the presence of the Lord, because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So move and flow in us, Lord, even as we read this simple prayer in Jesus' name. Just read it with me. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did, this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will, so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Father, continue to work in our lives, move in our hearts, our minds, and our emotions. We're grateful. Grateful for your peace and grateful for your presence. Jesus.